Well, good morning again. Uh, let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, in the beginning, you hovered over the mighty deep and chaos of the waters. And we might not describe our own lives this morning as chaos, but we do have trouble and difficulty and concern. Things that we're facing that we have to deal with. So we ask now that as you hover over us in this moment, wherever we find ourselves, that you would speak to us, that you would lead us into the truth that Jesus loves us. Father, show us his grace by the power of the Holy Spirit and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, before uh, taking a little break for Advent and Christmastide, we were talking together uh, about what Christians believe. Uh, So this morning we're going to get back to our series on the essentials of the Christian faith. We've been using the Apostles' Creed as our guide from that, and we've finished with the first two sections of the Creed, which are about God the Father and God the Son. So this morning we're going to look at the first line of the final section of the Creed, which says that we believe in the Holy Ghost. Or to use more modern English, we believe in the Holy Spirit. So if you're familiar at all with the Creed, uh, you know that those sections on God the Father and God the Son are pretty detailed. Uh, And so it might be easy, if you know that, to look at this part of the Creed, the final section of the Creed, as uh, like a checklist going through other stuff, starting with the Holy Spirit, just, you know, in order to wrap things up. Uh, But I think it would be a big mistake to think of that part of the creed in this way, um, because the final section of the creed is really about the ongoing work of God in the world. And of course, the way that God continues to be present and active in his world, our world, our lives, is through the Holy Spirit. And so the third section of the creed, the final section of the creed, is really a picture of the Spirit's work in and around and through us in the world. So in John 3, Jesus is talking to this guy named Nicodemus, and while he's talking to him, he makes a comparison. And it's one of my favorite comparisons in the New Testament, one of my favorite images in Jesus' teaching He says the Holy Spirit is like the wind. Jesus says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's come from or where it's going. (laughs) So think of the wind, church. Think of the wind through the trees or across a field of grain or over the top of of a big swell on the ocean. It is unmistakably present there and real and active and powerful, but you can't anticipate it, and you certainly can't contain it. And that is as gorgeous of a definition of God and his work in the world that you're likely to hear this week. We can't anticipate, we can't contain God's work in this world that he loves, but when he shows up, we definitely get to see it. We could not exhaust the work of God's Spirit in even a hundred sermons. But I think John 14 is a good place to start. 
because in John 14, Jesus teaches about two movements of the Spirit in the lives of people like us that are incredibly important. He teaches us about love and constant presence. So let me read from John 14 for us. I'll read John 14, uh, verses 15 through 20. You can follow along uh, where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. So as I was uh, thinking about that uh, teaching from Jesus that we just read together this week, I remembered something that happened between my youngest daughter, Cora, and I. Uh, it happened a long time ago, uh, back before she was even two years old. Uh, I was driving with her one morning, and of course she was, you know, strapped into her car seat in the back seat of the car. And uh, sun that morning was just streaming in through the window. It was so bright, and it fell on her face, and, and she was completely unshaded from it. And uh, she kept saying, Daddy bright, Daddy bright. <laughs> and I knew exactly what she meant. I mean, nobody likes that, but of course there was nothing I could do. I'm driving, and she's strapped in the seat, in the back seat, and in desperation, she finally said to me, Turn it off, Daddy. <laughs> and I just cracked up and I said, I would if I could, sweetie, but unfortunately, Daddy cannot turn the sun off. No one can. It is always there. Always on. And that kind of always on, constant presence is something like what Jesus wants to teach his disciples about the Holy Spirit in that part of the gospel that we just read. Jesus says these things to his friends in the final hours before he is arrested and hauled off into the night. They have no idea, really, what's going on. They have no idea what's about to happen. They can sense this intensity in Jesus' words. They can sense an, in an intensity in his actions. But they don't know what any of it means. They've just had this meal with Jesus. It's been an incredible meal. And like always, he has said some incredible things during this meal, in particular in this one, about his body and his blood. And they nodded along like they understood what he meant, but they didn't. And then in the verses right before the ones that we read, he says, I don't want you to be troubled, but I will be leaving you very shortly. So they're understandably upset. You know, not angry upset, but confused upset. He's leaving them, and they don't know why. 
And it's not just confusion over the details of it. It is just simply that he is leaving them. He's saying he's not going to be with them anymore. I mean, the things that they've seen him do, the things that they have heard him teach have turned their lives upside down. His constant presence over those last few years, his unshaking love for them has changed everything for them. And now he's telling them he's going away. So what Jesus does is begin to assure them that it's not exactly like what they think. He's going away, but he's still always going to be with them. (laughs) A constant presence. And church, that is the mystery and the beauty and the comfort of the Holy Spirit for people like us, too. So knowing that that's what's going on, it may seem a little strange what Jesus says in verse 15, because if Jesus is giving comfort, this is a strange way to begin it, but this is how he begins that comfort. He says first, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It doesn't seem to follow. Uh, You know, Jesus' words about love and commandments don't seem at first to have a whole lot to do with their confusion and their sadness and the details about what they should do when he goes away. But I think they speak directly into that fear. (laughs) And before we get to why I think that, I think it would be good for us to spend a couple of minutes talking about what these words mean just by themselves. If you love me, Jesus says, you'll keep my commandments. Those words are pretty straightforward and they're incredibly profound for people who follow Jesus. What Jesus says there first, I think, reflects what we all, every one of us here, it doesn't matter who we are, every one of us here kind of knows in our bones that something is true about every single important relationship in our lives. And that thing that we know to be true that Jesus is reflecting here is that real love changes people. Here's what I mean by that. You you cannot be the object of real, self-sacrificing, unselfish love and emerge from it unchanged. You just can't. When people are uh, like us are, are loved like that, with that kind of self-giving, unselfish, unshakable love, when people like us are loved like that, no matter how messed up we were when it started, We change. It's just that simple. Defenses start to go down around the person who loves you like that. You start acting differently. You start talking differently around someone who loves you like that. You stop feeling afraid. And you stop feeling guarded. You start to trust that person with everything. Even if it's slow, you start to trust them with everything. You become open-handed and vulnerable with that person because you feel known and seen. And then you, you start wanting to do stuff that makes the person that loves you like that happy because your love is being drawn out by their love. And I know that we don't often see love like that. I mean, I hope all of us can and all of us do. And, and our best human loves are pointers to that love and they're a participation in that love. But here's the truth, church. 
This is how Jesus loves us. This is the love that is offered to people like you and me in this thing we call the good news, the gospel. His love for us is thoroughgoing, and it is unselfish, and it is complete. He loved me, St. Paul says. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. And being a Christian means having the faith to believe that's true and to say it for ourselves. And here's how we know that we believe that it's true. We start to change. Our own love begins to be drawn out by his love. And in part, that looks like wanting to do things that make him happy. It looks like letting his will cut into our will and change the stuff that we do. Or as Jesus puts it, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And church, it's, it's so, so important for us to under, understand this and make sure that we get this right. So listen to me. Keeping Jesus' commands flows directly out of our experience of his love for us. Our good works, our keeping of his commands are the normal, unavoidable product of being in love with him because love changes us. That's how ethics work in the Christian life. It's so important. We don't do what Jesus commands so that he'll love us. We don't do what he commands so that he will think better of us. We keep his commands because he loves us. And his love is drawing out our love and changing us. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, I just want to say, I think this is a really huge thing to understand. Um, Because a lot of times people come at Christianity with things kind of flipped around. And the keeping commandment parts is the first thing that you consider when you think about Christianity. And yes, Christianity has ethical demands. And they're no joke. They're serious. And they're often viewed with frustration or distaste. You know, why, why does... Christianity say that I need to love all of my neighbors. You know, not all of my neighbors have good politics. You know, why, why does Christianity teach that I should be generous with my time and my money and my things? Aren't they mine? Didn't I earn it? Didn't I carve all of this out? Why does Christianity teach that I should always tell the truth? I don't know if you know this, but sometimes when I tell the truth, it doesn't work out in my favor. Why does God care what I do with my body? Isn't it all mine? These are really good questions, and they have really, really good answers, but they don't make sense as the starting point when considering Christianity. The proper starting point has to be the self-giving, white-hot love and grace of Jesus. I mean, if he is who he says he is, and if his death and resurrection and ascension really mean that you can be forgiven and healed and restored, then the first question is always less about, you know, why is he restricting me? And more about, Can I trust this person who loves me like this enough 
to let him speak into my life and tell me what might be good for me. Because we do that with everyone that we believe really loves us. We let them speak into our lives. We let their will cut into our will and change us. I'm not saying the secondary questions aren't important. They're important. I'm just saying they have the proper place, which is secondary to trusting the Jesus who loves you enough to have died to have you. Can you trust him? Can you? Will you trust him? Because Christianity isn't a checklist of things to like or not like or do or not do. It is faith in a relationship with the God of the universe who has given everything to have you. So knowing this, I think, I hope that it begins to make sense how these words are words of comfort to the disciples in the upper room that night. He's used these words to comfort them because he has reminded them of his love for them and theirs for him. He has drawn attention for them to this deep love that exists between them, the communion of love that exists between them. As Jesus puts it in verse 20, you'll know that I'm in my Father and you in me and I in you. It is an unbreakable communion. And if that's true, then they don't need to be troubled, even if they can't sort out all of the details in that moment. They will not be abandoned. They have to know it because love does not abandon. And church, this happens to be one of the things that the Holy Spirit does even now, right now, right now, in this moment for people like us. We heard it in the New Testament lesson from Romans 5 that Mark read. That's where Paul says God's love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's one of his jobs, one of his works is to speak the love of God to us. He does that in all kinds of ways. Of course, he does it through the means of grace, like scripture reading and worship and sacraments and the writing of sermons and the listening to of sermons. But he does it in a million other ways too. Because the wind blows wherever it wants, however it wants. Jesus makes all of this explicit to them Uh, In verse 16, he tells them, I'm going to ask the Father, and he will send you a helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So helper is the name that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit here. Um, It's just one of the ways that we translate this really astoundingly complex and beautiful word that Jesus uses into our language We talked about this a little bit back in June at Pentecost Sunday. I mean, this word, depending on where it's used, sometimes means comforter and sometimes supporter, sometimes advocate or encourager or counselor or teacher or guide. It's one of those words that can't really properly be contained, (laughs) you know, like the wind. And it means that his disciples are not going to be orphans. They won't be left alone in this world to fend for themselves. And Jesus just says that. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says, I will come to you. (laughs) 
when he talks about sending the Spirit. The Spirit that Jesus sends will continue to do what Jesus has been doing. And that's why the Apostle Paul and also Peter, who happens to be in the room that night with Jesus, can later on in their writings say that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Because he does what Jesus does. Constant presence and love. And Jesus is telling his disciples that even though he's going away, he is still very much going to be with them. And even if they don't understand all of the details of it, and for sure they don't, it will actually be better for them if he goes away. Because his presence with them won't be restricted to where he is with them physically. Once the Spirit comes, he will be with them at all times, everywhere in the world whatever it is that they're facing. Constant presence, always on. And church, that promise isn't just for apprehensive, fearful, confused disciples a long time ago in some room somewhere. That promise is for everyone who follows Jesus in faith. He is with us right now. And this is how we can live the life that he has called us to live in this world, because we are not alone. For example, this is how a church like ours can follow Jesus into mission. A little over 10 years ago, we together started on that really hard and amazing task of planning churches for the good of our great city. Some of you have been around since then. This is just part of your story. Maybe some of you have never heard me talk about this before. But since the fall of 2009, you know, lots of our money and our resources, and most importantly, lots of our people have made their way out of our doors to plant churches in Lincoln Square and in Austin and Oak Park. We have said goodbye to dear friends and pastors And I know, really, I know, believe me, from a completely human way of looking at things, there's no return on those investments. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense on paper. You know, why would we do something so costly? Why would we spend our capital on things outside of our walls? I mean, from a relational standpoint, honestly, who wants to say goodbye if we don't have to? Why stick our necks out if no one's making us? I mean, yeah, it sounds good on paper, but where does the power come to follow through on something like that? From the helper. From the helper that Jesus is talking about right here. His spirit is in us doing the work of Jesus, making the work And life of Jesus pulse inside of us, driving us into mission. He's with us right now, doing all that he does, comforting us, teaching us, speaking to us and for us, searching the deep things of God, taking our prayers to the Father, making sure that we know that we are daughters and sons who are loved and who are doing exactly what we've been called to do. That's why we take these risks and pay these costs Because when the Spirit leads us into them, we stop seeing them really as risks and costs. And we start seeing them as joy and delight because we've been made and wired and gifted to do it. Mission is Jesus' life. And he's in us. 
and we're in him. And so mission is our life too. It's what we've been made for. And we're never alone. And of course, this works in smaller ways in your life and mine too. I mean, is it difficult to love unlovely neighbors? Yeah, of course it is. But we do it with the presence of the triune God and in his power. Is there a risk for people like us? Is there some kind of cost that might have to be paid for people like us to confront a family member who's hurting themselves or hurting other people? Yeah, of course. But with the helper guiding us into it, pulsing the life of Jesus in it, we find that these hard things, these costly things, can be done even with joy that is durable. Is cutting out a sinful way of being, is, is working to weaken an addiction difficult? Yes. But I don't do it alone, and neither do you. Does facing loss or grief or suffering that is so great that your first impulse is to check out? Does that seem like it's too much? Yeah. But Jesus said, I'm going to give you a helper that will be with you forever. So we don't do it alone. His presence is always with us. We are not orphans. And that means that we have all that we need to live the life that we have been called to live. The helper pours out the love of God into our hearts. And that love draws out our own love for him and for our neighbors. And his constant presence means that we are not alone. This is the life, church, that we are meant for. Because I live, Jesus said to his friends on that night long ago, because I live, you will live. And church, that's what we confess when we say with the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to believe. (laughs) Help us to believe that you love us that you are present with us all the time, strengthening us, encouraging us, teaching us to do the life and the work that you have called us to in this world. Help us to believe for our good, of course, and for the good of this broken and hurting world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.